1 Corinthians chapter 10, and here's the way this has been working. I'm sure you've picked up on this by now, but, but as Paul is answering questions that people in the church at Corinth have asked him, right? Like he found out about the fact that there was some disunity, so he dealt with that in the first part of the letter. Now they're asking questions. They ask questions about marriage. They ask questions about sexual morality and singleness and divorce, and he answered those questions. And, and then starting in chapter 8, they asked him a question about their freedoms, their liberty. Basically, if you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago, the question was, how far does our freedom go? Specifically, are we allowed to participate in questionable things that the Bible hasn't specifically said no to? Like, God didn't say no. Are we allowed to participate? Do we have the freedom to participate? And and we we saw that Paul said very clearly in chapter 8, yes, you have liberty. You have the freedom to participate in anything that God has not said no to. There it is. So you have liberty. But here's what he says in chapter 8. He says, but if you love God right? And you want to love like God loves. You want to use that freedom carefully. It says, yes, you have freedom, but never allow your freedom to turn into a stumbling block for somebody whose faith is, Paul's word, weaker than yours, right? So we talked about this in terms of something like um, drinking alcohol or, or watching TV, uh, watching movies, um, if you lived in that footloose town, going dancing, right? All of these kinds of things. Paul says, yes, you've got the freedom to do those. Yes, if God doesn't say no to it, if God hasn't morally drawn a line, then you're free to participate. But don't participate in a way that causes somebody else's faith to be hurt. That was the principle from chapter 8. And then Paul went on this, and Pastor David shared this last week. He went on this, this long personal explanation about how he limits his own freedoms— so that he can share the gospel with people that need to know it. Remember, he says it this way. Um, He says that he becomes all things to all people, so that he might save a few. He says, when I'm with the Jews or those that are under the law, he says, I act like a Jew. I act like I'm under Jewish law. He says, I'm not, but I act like I am. I follow Jewish customs and restrictions. Why? Because I don't want my freedom to turn into a stumbling block. He says, when I'm with the Gentiles, those that aren't under the law, I don't follow the restrictions in the Jewish customs. Why? Because I don't want that to turn into a stumbling block. He's like, I don't want it to be about anything but Jesus Christ and the cross. He says, so I become all things to all people. Here's here's how Pastor David framed it for us last week. Here's what Paul commits to. It's what we say we commit to as a body, right? Because we know core value number three at Blessed Hope, we are on a rescue mission, means that we will do anything short of sin to reach people with the gospel. We will do anything short of sin. We won't sin, but we will do anything short of sin to reach people with the gospel. That's what Paul says, right? And so then in chapter 10, what's going to happen is is he's going to go ahead and he's going to take this a step further, and he's going to say, yes, you have freedom, right? You want to be careful of your freedom so that it doesn't cause other people to stumble, and He's going to wrap up this chunk by saying you have to be careful about your freedom because if you're not careful, you will end up getting yourself disqualified. That's how Paul ends it. Remember in chapter 9, this is where Pastor David finished last week. 
He said, so I do not run aimlessly, right? I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is what Paul says. He's like, I have invested so much in you and in other churches. I've poured myself out for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of saving people, for the sake of bringing people into salvation. He's like, it's God's work. God does it. But I am pouring myself out doing his work. And he's like, so I discipline myself in my freedom. I don't allow my freedom to cause me problems. Right? Paul's not saying he's legalistic. He, he values his freedom, but he says, I'm going to restrict my freedoms to the point that I don't want to fall. Think about it this way. There, some of you, if you're, if you're watching online, I don't know how well you can see this, but, but some of you that are here, if you're here week in, week out, you notice that I oftentimes will get dangerously close to this ledge. Sometimes I look down and I find that my feet are hanging off of it to a degree. And then I take a step back. I don't do it on purpose. I just get close. I want to get closer to you and you all sit really far away. Front chairs are open. But, but I, get, I, I, I get close. And, and here's the deal. Someday, I'm probably going to fall off this ledge. And when that happens, don't feel bad for me. I mean, you don't have to laugh at me. But don't feel bad for me because it's my own fault for getting so close, even though I know it's there. And, and that's part of what happens with our Christian freedom. Right? We, we know where the line is. And so we think I'm free. I'm still free. I'm still free. And I get as close to the line as I can, where I can still be free to do whatever I want. Right. And I want to live here. And Paul says, man, I am really careful. I discipline myself. I train my body because after teaching you and pouring myself out for you and preaching the gospel and giving my life up, I do not want to find myself disqualified by falling over. Now, I want to be clear. Paul's not talking about being disqualified from the Christian faith. Paul is a Christian. He has walked through the door of salvation. He has given his life to to Jesus Christ. He's surrendered and he is not saying, boy, if I'm not careful, I might sin enough that God takes my salvation away from me. Please listen to me. You are not one sin away Like, I don't care what your theological bent is, right? We all have theological bents on these debatable things about salvation, but I don't care what your theological bent is, but but here's what I can promise you. None of us are one sin away from having our salvation stripped away. That's not how it works. But Paul is one sin away from disqualifying himself from being a missionary He's one sin away from from disqualifying himself to be the author of these letters in the New Testament and from being useful and effective for ministry. I am not one sin away from losing my Christianity, but I am one sin away from disqualifying myself as the ability to serve as your pastor. I'm just one sin away, right? And and it's not going to strip my faith, but it will strip my effectiveness in my service. And Paul says, I don't want to be disqualified. So in chapter 10, I know it's a long, long way to understand what he's going to be telling us. But, but in chapter 10, he basically is saying, look, I want to encourage you, right? 
in how to use your freedom not to hurt other people, right? We're not worried about other people right now. We already talked about that. But for you, I want to encourage you in how to use your freedom so that you don't disqualify yourself. All right? That's where we jump in. Chapter 10. Sorry, Philip. Chapter 10, verse 1 um, through 5. And here's what he says. He says, brothers, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be unaware. He's like, I do this so that I won't be disqualified. And I want you also to be aware, right? That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So what, this, this is going to sound weird. He's actually going to be talking about the Israelites, right? And, and he's going to be using their spiritual forefathers as an example. Now, here's the thing to know about the Israelites. They are the spiritual forefathers of the church, None of us, I don't, I shouldn't say none of us, but I don't think any of us here in person, here for service, maybe some watching online, I don't think any of us are um, ethnically um, Jewish, right? I don't think that, that we can say that from an ethnic standpoint that, they, that, that the, the Israelites are our forefathers. But for all of us that are Christians, we would say that the Israelites are our spiritual forefathers, right? And and so when Paul's addressing the church, he's not addressing um, Jews that have become Christians. Most of the church is Gentiles that have become Christians, but he's still telling them the Israelites are your spiritual forefathers, right? Because it is through them, right, through the Old Testament that, that God came and made himself known in the world and made promises and covenant promises. And it's through the nation of Israel that God brought Jesus Christ to be the fulfillment of the sacrifice so that all of us can now be part of the same spiritual family, right? So, so Israel is our spiritual forefathers, right? And he says, I want you to be, I don't want you to be unaware. So our fathers, he's talking about our theirs and our spiritual forefathers, the Israelites. He's like, they had every reason to be confident. You know, confidence. We have confidence when we know things are going our way. You know who had a lot of confidence going into last Sunday's game against the University of Illinois in Chicago? Was the fighting Illini from the University of Illinois. You don't care, but that's my team right? That's the team that I watched all year long in the Big Ten. And they were a number one seed in the tournament. They were supposed to be in the final four. I did my NCAA bracket and I had them losing to Gonzaga in the championship game. Instead, they lost in the round of 32 to UIC Chicago. Here's the problem. I'm imagining they were overconfident. They were overconfident, right? Not only were they a number one seed, not only were they one of the top four teams in the country going into the tournament, um, they were playing a team that, that if they had a ranking would have been somewhere around 64, 65, right? And, and to make matters even worse, it was the University of Illinois against the University of Illinois in Chicago, like the secondhand Illinois school. Like all of the people at UIC Chicago, they would have loved to go play at Illinois, but they weren't good enough. They weren't good enough. They couldn't get those scholarships. So they went to play there instead. Here's the problem. They were overconfident. It didn't end well. They lost badly. Right? Now, some of you are like, Illinois, I don't care. Fine. I would did the same thing. 
And so that we can feel better about ourselves, Illinois and Iowa fans, Iowa State only won two games this year. So we don't even have to worry about them. But overconfidence is a problem. And Israel was overconfident. This is what Paul says. He's like, they had freedom. They knew God. They got right up to the edge and they wanted to live there and thought they'd be okay. But they weren't. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. Man, our fathers, our spiritual forefathers, they were all under the cloud and they were all baptized through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now there's a lot of words there. Let me tell you what they mean. When he says they were all under the same cloud and they all passed through the sea, what, what, what Paul's talking about is this moment where the Israelites left Egypt, right? And so they had seen um, God speaking through Moses, demanding with Pharaoh to let my people go. And when Pharaoh didn't comply, they saw Moses through, uh, God through Moses usher in 10 plagues. The final of which was so bad, the death of the firstborn child, that Pharaoh was compelled to release, to release Israel. And Israel left Egypt. And then Israel found themselves at a place where they were surrounded, right? There was the Red Sea in front of them. And the Egyptian army had decided that they changed their mind and was chasing them. And God, through Moses, parted the Red Sea so that Israel could walk through on dry land and closed it behind them destroying the armies of Egypt. And then to show them where to go, God's glory, the manifest presence of God himself led them in a pillar of of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night so um, they could follow. And they were in the middle of the desert where there was no food and God provided spiritual food. He basically made it rain food every day manna from heaven fell and they gathered it and they prepared it and they ate and they were in the desert and there was nothing to drink, right? So, so God said, hey, I'm with you. I've got you. I will take care of you. Moses, talk to that rock. And Moses talked to that rock and the rock poured out water that they could all drink, right? They had every reason to be confident, right? In their position with God. They had seen him work over and over again. They now had physical freedom from Egypt. But they blew it. This is what Paul's saying here. He's like, look, they all had this. They all passed through the sea. They all ate the food. They all drank the water. They all saw the cloud and the pillar of fire, and they all followed it. God was with them, and they knew it. But yet, they acted in such a way that God was not pleased. What happened? Well, these things, um, these things took place as examples for us so that we might, desire e- might not desire evil as they did. What happened is they desired evil. Even though God gave them freedom, instead of using that freedom to worship and serve God better, they used that freedom to pursue evil. And so, so Paul's saying, look, use these guys as an example They were overconfident in their freedom. They were confident in their position. And because of that, they did evil. He's saying, you can't do evil and expect to be okay. And when he says they 
God was not pleased with them, and he took care of them in the desert. This, this is the, the people. that 40 years they wandered in the desert. If you don't know the story of, of Israel as they were slaves in Egypt and as God brought them out, um, and, and then how God established them as a nation through covenant and through prophets. I would encourage you, go back. Last fall, we did a series called Long Story Short, and go back and listen to some of those that have to deal with these um, signposts in the Old Testament, and maybe that will help you understand this a little bit better. But, but God brought them out, and he took them to the edge of the promised land, and in their freedom, they decided to do evil instead. So instead of going and possessing the land that God promised them, they were made to wander for 40 years in the wilderness because of their disobedience, because they chose evil instead of choosing God. And the generation, the generation that should have conquered the land, the generation of adults, right? There were children, yes, but the generation of adults that should have gone in to conquer the land God promised, what happened is over the next 40 years where God caused them to wander, that generation died. Over the course of 40 years, they died to the point where there were only three of them left. Moses, kind of, and then Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else from that generation died in the wilderness. And so Paul is using them as an example. He's saying, look, they had every reason to be confident, as you do. But they messed it up because they chose evil. Don't you mess it up too. And so here's how they chose evil. Here's what Paul says. Three things. First, um, they were idolaters. They chose evil by pursuing idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. You know what idolatry is? Idolatry is choosing something to be in the center of your life that's not God. That's all it is. Idolatry is choosing something to be in the center of your life that's not God. When we say idolatry, we automatically think of statues, like in the Old Testament, right? They had shrines and statues and temples to to, to small g gods, to false gods. And we think that's what idolatry is. But really at the heart of it, idolatry is anytime you put something in the center of your life that is not God. And when you pursue something instead of God with your fullness, you're committing idolatry. I said this during first service um, that, I, I, you know, you've heard me talk about Riley and Isaiah and they're getting married here later in April. I promise I'll stop talking about them after they get married. Um, but the guy that's doing their wedding happened to be here the other day and he's doing their premarital counseling. And normally I do the premarital counseling, but in this case, it seemed weird, right? So he's doing their premarital counseling and I was being a nosy dad, right? We, he was here, we were talking about something else and I'm like, hey, Mark. Um, how's the premarital counseling going? Now, he probably should have said none of your business, but he didn't. And so now I know stuff, (laughs) but it's good stuff because here's what I know. Here's what he said. He said, as a father, you should be very encouraged. You should be very encouraged. And he said, there's a lot of reasons, but he gave me one example. He's like, as we got down and started talking and they started going over some, some, some basic things to get ready for this counseling, that, uh, that he asked the question of Isaiah, um, and, and this is the answer he got from Riley's future husband. Um, he said, you know what? I love Jesus more than I love Riley. 
And, and Riley, Riley said to, to him about Isaiah, you know, I, I love Jesus more than I love Isaiah. And we might think, well, that's weird. Why would I be happy about that? Well, I'm happy about that because that's both of them putting Jesus front and center in their lives. And by having Jesus as the absolute center of their lives, then they are going to be free from the drag of idolatry and they will not put each other in that position where we're idolizing one another. Right? Anytime, even if it's your spouse, your kids, your career, whatever it is, anytime you put something else as the very core centrality of your life, it's idolatry. And, and Paul says that's the first mistake that the Israelites made. The first thing they did, they got so close to the edge and the first way they fell off was practicing idolatry. It says they, they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play, right? You might think what's wrong with sitting down to eating and drinking? What's wrong with playing? Well, those are very clearly um, descriptors of idolatrous festivals where there would be eating and drinking and sacrificing and drunkenness all dedicated to the God that they were honoring. And the getting up to play, well, Paul talks about that next. Right? It has to do with sexual immorality. So, so we do not engage in idolatry. Do not get stuck in idolatry. He continues, we must not indulge. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. Right? Because, for example, 23,000 people died in one day because of sexual immorality. We'll, we'll cover that in a second. But, but here's the thing that you have to understand. In... All idolatrous religions, I shouldn't say all, in most idolatrous religions, sexual morality and idolatry are so closely linked. Somebody asked me why. It's a great question. Here's why. Because Satan is smart. Because Satan is really smart. Satan is not dumb. He is not foolish. He's evil and he's wicked, but he is formidable. And he knows what he's doing. So what he does is he gets people, and this is not new. This has been from the beginning. He gets people to engage in idolatry by coupling it with something that they think they want, a pleasure they want to pursue. See, so in a lot of these religions, the way that you worship is to engage in sexual morality. That's what it was in Corinth, remember? They had the temple to Aphrodite in Corinth. And at the temple to Aphrodite in Corinth, it employed at any given time no less than 1,000 temple prostitutes. So you wanted to worship the goddess Aphrodite? Guess how you did it? Making a sacrifice and engaging in temple prostitution. See, the reason that sexual immorality and idol worship are so closely linked is because it becomes very easy for us, right, to engage in idol worship when we're chasing after something like sexual pleasure. And here's the thing. We get stuck. He does the same thing today. We get stuck in the same thing. We're just not worshiping Aphrodite. Do you know what we worship? You know what's at the center of your life? You. Your pleasure. What you want. Man, if I got to hear one more person tell me about their truth, I'm going to throw up. It's driving me nuts. Well, you know what? You just got to live your truth. 
Even if my truth tells me I need to get a divorce and I need to have an affair and I need to go over here, I'm just living my truth, right? I'm just being who I am. I'm just going the direction that that I am. Like that's what I feel like. And so I'm just being honest with myself and I'm pursuing my truth. I'm at the center. And you know what? It's not a hard thing to understand how sexual immorality and following our truth are so inexplicably linked in our culture. Satan knows what he's doing. Paul says, going, going all the way back to the time of the church in Corinth, he says, look, I don't want you to be unwise. Yes, you've got freedom, but I don't want you to disqualify yourself because you pursue your freedom to the point of sin like the Israelites did. He's like, so do not get engaged in idol worship. Do not get involved in sexual morality. The, the reference he's making there to 23,000 falling in a single day is, is something you can read about in Numbers 21. Um, it, it's where the Israelites decided to prostitute themselves to the daughters of Moab. And because this was offensive to God, God raised an army of faithful Israelites and he had them put to death everybody that was unfaithful. Like the, Paul's point here to the church in Corinth is God takes this stuff pretty seriously. And the last thing, he says, don't commit idolatry. Don't um, get involved in sexual immorality. But he says, we also must not put Christ to the test um, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Philip, can it go ahead one? There you go. I mean, I guess that's not all that dramatic of a shift. Um, But I didn't want the underlines to confuse you. So now you know. But here's what he says. He says, do not put Christ to the test. That's what the Israelites did, right? They, they were in the wilderness, and, the, and instead of using their freedom to love God and serve God more, they used their freedom to grumble and test God and push against him. And so he brought calamity on them. Again, you can read more about those in, in um, Exodus in the book of Numbers, but, but they, they complained so much, and they rebelled against God so much that he sent poisonous snakes into their camp. And when the snake bit them, they were sick and dying. And then when they repented, um, he had Moses fashion a golden snake that he lifted up. And whenever they were sick and dying because of their rebellion, they had to look at the snake to receive healing, right? You get the, the symbolic picture. That was physical. It was a picture of our sin and having to look to Christ on the cross, right? But, but because of their rebellion, that's what happened. And um, the destroyer destroyed many of them because they, they rebelled. Uh, Korah led a rebellion. You read about that in Numbers also. And in that rebellion, um, they said, you know what? God, we're not following your chosen leadership anymore. We're not following Moses. We think we should be in charge. So God sent the destroyer to wipe out anybody that was involved in that rebellion. That's the same destroyer, the same angel that he sent through Egypt with the 10th plague. He sent through the Israelite camp. Because he takes this seriously. He says, you cannot use your freedom to rebel against God. It doesn't work. Right? He keeps going. Right? He says, now these things in verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for us. 
right? They're written down for our instruction um, on whom the end of the age has come, right? We live in the end of the age, right? We don't know when it's coming, but the church age is the last age before the return of Christ. From the moment he ascended to heaven um, till the moment he comes back again, we're in the church age. This is now, right? Some of us think, man, he's coming back quickly. Maybe, I hope, right? But people have been thinking he's coming back soon for a long, long time, right? He's coming back in his good timing. Um, But until then, we are living in this end of the age. And he says, it's for our instruction, right? Therefore, if anyone thinks he stands, let him be really careful that he doesn't fall, right? Learn from the Israelites who had every reason to proudly think they were going to stand. In their freedom, they thought they were good, They left Egypt, they left slavery behind, they were on their way, and they, instead of following God, they got stuck in idolatry, sexual morality, and they grumbled, and they complained, and they tested God, and they were brought low. Paul says, don't let that happen to you, right? And and then, basically, he says, and no excuses, right? Looking at, starting in verse 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man, you're not unique. The struggles you have, they're not special. Other people have them too. That should be an encouragement to you, right? The fact that you have temptations that feel strong and you feel like maybe you're the only one that can understand them and you're the only one that's ever had to deal with that pressure. No, no, no. It says there's no temptation that's overtaken you that's not common to man. And he says this, God is faithful right? And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also give you a way to escape so that you can endure it. You know what? This is a fancy way of saying this. You don't have to sin, right? You've got no excuse. You're like, oh, but I fell into idolatry. I fell into sexual immorality. I fell into these things and I'm only human. What am I supposed to do? Paul says, no, no, no. And there's no temptation that you're dealing with that's so profound that nobody else understands it. And furthermore, God is faithful and he will always provide you a way of escape. He's not going to let you languish on your own. He's going to step in and he's going to help you. And so, no, you do not have to sin. And so this is this weird dichotomy that we have. Listen, when you sin, God still loves you. When you sin, God is still faithful to you. When you sin, you are not forsaken. You're not abandoned. We just sang it in that song, right? When you sin, God still pours mercy and grace and love out on you. He still lavishes such love on you that you are called a child of God. But when you sin, it ought to break your heart. Why? It ought to break your heart because your sin hurts God. How can your sin hurt God? Well, your sin, all of it, the one you do later today because you got so close to the edge that you couldn't step back, all of it. Yes, it's forgiven, but think how it's forgiven. It's forgiven because it was put on Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. The weight of every single sin was put on Christ. You are forgiven and free, but your sin ought to devastate you because it hurts God. 
And it ought to devastate you because it hurts your relationship with God. Because when you have sin in your life that you're not repenting from, when you have sin in your life that that you wantonly participate in, that drives a wedge between you and God. Sin ought to break your heart. Yes, revel in your freedom and your forgiveness. But don't be flippant in your sin because it because it costs. He says, you don't have to. God will give you a way out. And you know this, this interesting thing about God giving you a way out? Sometimes common sense rules there. Some kind of common sense rules. Um, this is the example I used in the first service, which is a little weird, but David said strip club last week, and so I felt challenged to say strip club in um, the sermon this week. So here's my example, right? Um, God has promised to give me a way out, but that does not mean I should set up camp right at the line, Right? that I should put it to the test, right? It doesn't mean that I walk through the door of the strip club and I'm like, you know what? I'm fine as long as I don't turn around and look at the stage, right? Like, come on, right? Like, like I'm not to test God in this way. I'm supposed to avoid the things that get close to sin. That's, that's basically what Paul's saying here. He's like, look, the Israelites had every right um, to feel confident, and they did, but they took it too far. And in their freedom, in their confidence, they screwed it all up. Don't make the same mistake. And when you're tempted, God will give you a way out, but, but don't get so close. And then he continues. He's like, so therefore, here's what you do. Flee from idolatry. Get away from it. He said, I'm speaking to you as sensible people. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. Judge for yourselves what I say. Just stay away from idolatry. Don't invite it in. Don't get close to it. Don't hang out with it. Right? Stay away from it. James says it this way. He says, temptation actually comes from your own desires. Right? So if I'm supposed to flee from these things, part of it is I have to get my desires in check. Temptation comes from my own sinful desires. When I desire something that's not good. Well, guess what happens when I desire something that's not good? Satan then, because he's good at what he does, which is leading you astray, will parade that thing in front of you. Back and forth. Trying to get you to engage. And here's what happens. You take a step closer and you take a step closer and the next thing you know, you've engaged in sin. And that desire gives birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Listen, sin always seems fun. It always seems like a good idea until you commit it. And it never does for you what you hope it will do. It just brings death. This is, Paul, this is the point Paul's making. It's like you've got to be better than this. He goes on to say that, that idolatry makes no sense. Right? That idolatry makes no sense because you can't be committed and connected to Christ and committed and connected to an idol at the same time. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? There's one bread and, and one body, uh, and we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. All those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Like, like it's this idea he's saying, look, we are Christians, right? That's what we celebrate with communion, right? We all eat the same body when we eat the bread. It's the body of Christ. We all drink the same cup when we drink uh, the juice, right? It's the blood of Christ. We're all participating in this. How in the world can I participate 
with this, right, if I'm dabbling in idols. And some of you, again, we fall into this trap. We're like, I'm not dabbling into an idol. I'm not worshiping an idol. If Christ isn't at the center, yes, you are. And so it's really, really difficult to say, I am a Christian, but Christ isn't at my center. Something there doesn't jive. So here's part of what I'd ask you at this point. Are you sure Christ is at the center of your life? I mean, really take a good, solid inventory. Is following Jesus more important to you than anything else? If it, if it is, then Christ is at the center of your life. But if something else is more important than following Jesus, then something else is in the wrong place. It says, but, but following following idols doesn't make sense because you're part of Christ. You can't be part of Christ and part of something else. He says, what do I imply then? Right? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. Right? An idol isn't God, but here's what it is. What pagans sacrifice when they do a sacrifice to an idol, do you know what that's to? That's to a demon. Idol worship is demon worship. It's like, I don't want you to be a participant with demons. I don't want you to hang out with demons. I don't want you to worship demons. I don't want you to make sacrifices to demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, right? You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, right? In doing that, we're going to provoke the Lord to anger. We're going to make him jealous. That's not appropriate. That's not okay. He won't tolerate it. idol worship, anything in the center of your life that isn't Christ. It's demonic. Now, I want to I be careful. It doesn't mean the thing at the center of your life is demonic. But worshiping it and choosing it over God is demonic. So, in my marriage, if I make my world revolve around Carrie in every way, and she is the end all be all of everything that I desire, and I love her more than I love God, and I follow her more than I follow God, if I put her first, right, then what happens is that I'm engaged in idol worship. Carrie's not evil. But my putting Carrie in that position is evil. Some of, man, I said, Carrie's not evil. And she's not here right now. She was here for a service. And, and so she doesn't appreciate the fact that Chris Cantrell is in the back going, well, I don't know. She's not. Anyway, the point is this, right? My putting her in that position, that's evil. And we've got to wrap our heads around this when it comes to idol worship because we think if we're not actually worshiping an idol, then we're safe. But all of this is about where Christ's position is. And what Paul is saying is Christ must be center. If he's not center, it doesn't make sense because you're, you're saying, thank you, Jesus, for saving, and I surrender my life to you, and I'm giving my all to you. But then at the same time, you're putting something else in the center. It doesn't work. It's disjointed. 
It can't work. And in doing that, we provoke the Lord to jealousy, right? And I know a lot of you like, that, that would never bow down. Like I, 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 people that would never bow down to an idol, to a demon, to a statue. But yet, man, they put a lot of things in the center of their life. They just didn't realize they were worshiping idols in that way. Career, retirement, sports, kids, whatever. Keep going. Paul's going to end this chunk, this chunk of of the letter, this section. He's going to end it by, by summing up his four positions on your liberties. Right? He spent two and a half chapters talking about your liberties and what to do with them and why they're dangerous and, and how we have to pursue them with caution. And now he's going to sum up with four things. These are all review in the last two and a half chapters. Uh, verse 23, choose edification over gratification. Right? He says, I promise he says it. Yep, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. He says, basically, just because you can doesn't mean you always should. Before you engage in something, you ask yourself, is God okay with this? If his word doesn't restrict you from it, then yes, he's okay with it. But you have to ask yourself another question. Is it good for me? I'll give you an example. I enjoy a drink. When I sit down to dinner, you know, I have a drink. You sit down to dinner, you have a glass of wine. Is God okay with that? Absolutely. Right? Do you have the freedom to engage in that? Sure you do. Right? Is it good for you? Maybe, maybe not. Does it end at one drink? Or does it turn into two? Maybe three. And by the time you've had three, you know you might as well just finish off that bottle of wine because there's only a little bit left. If that's what happens, then just because you have the ability doesn't mean it's good for you. doesn't mean it's edifying for you. And you should probably avoid it. Okay? Second principle. Choose others over yourself. Reviews what he said in chapter 8, right? Choose others over yourself, right? He says... Um, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbors. If me engaging in my freedom is going to cause you to stumble and sin, then it is not worth it. It's not worth it to me. Three, liberty over legalism. So some of you might think, well, then I'm just going to avoid everything questionable, right? I'm going to avoid everything questionable. That way we're never going to have a problem. But Paul says that's not the right way to think about it either. Don't be legalistic. He says you have liberty, Use your liberty. Just use it wisely. Here's what he says. He says, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience, right? For, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And, and if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and, and you're disposed to go, then just go. Eat what they put in front of you. Don't ask about it. Don't question whether it was sacrificed to idols. Just eat it, right? And there's no conscience issue there. You go right ahead. No problem. Okay, so, you know, you want to go to the market and you're looking to buy the best cut of meat, right? Because you want something delicious to eat. You don't have to worry about whether it was sacrificed to an idol or anything else. He said, you didn't participate in the sacrifice. You didn't sin by, by participating in that. So just eat what you want. It's no big deal. Everything is God's anyway. Just pick what you want, eat what you want. You have freedom. You have liberty over legalism. But then he says this way, always condescend before you condemn. 
Let me explain. He says, if someone says to you, right, he says, if, if a buddy invites you over um, and says, hey, here, I made you a steak. Eat the steak. You don't have to ask whether or not it's sacrificed to idols. Just eat it. It's fine. Said, but if the person that's with you, if there's another guest that says, whoa, time out, that was sacrificed to an idol, then instead of giving them a lecture about my freedom and telling them that it's fine, right, and being a stumbling block to them, just condescend. Say, okay, you're right. I'll stay away from it. Right? Now, later I can have a conversation with them, but in the moment, I don't make my freedom the issue. He says that if somebody says to you, that's been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of their conscience. Right? He says, my conscience is fine no matter what I do. Because if I partake with thankfulness, then I'm not denounced because of what um, somebody else thinks, what I gave thanks for. Right? But, but don't let it be a stumbling block to somebody else. These are summative statements. Right? Edification over gratification. Put others over yourself. You've got liberty over legalism. If you're trusting in legalism, you're trusting in the wrong thing. And condescension over condemnation. Okay? And then he ends with this. He's like, so I don't really care if you eat or don't eat it. I don't care if you drink or don't drink. Here's what he says. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, here's the key. Just do it all to the glory of God. And if you're doing it all to the glory of God then you're going to be okay. That's it. Be careful in giving glory to God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that many, um, that of many, that they may be saved. So here's the same thing he said before, right? Like, like just don't be offensive to people. Do whatever you can to save some. That's the goal. And then he says this that some people think is a little arrogant. But I think it's a great place for us to stop here and it's a good thing for us to consider because I really hope we could say the same thing. He says, you know what? If it gets confusing, here's what you do. Just act like me. Phone's ringing. Does anybody else hear that? Okay, good. Um, He says, follow me as I follow God. That's all he says. He's like, look, if this gets confusing to you, Right? If all of this talk about your liberties and your freedoms and everything else, if it's all confusing, then follow these simple policies. Do everything for the glory of God, right? And just follow me. He's like, because I'm going the right direction. I have confidence, Paul says. I know I'm going the right way, so imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. And this is my ask for you. Are you using your freedoms in such a way that you're getting so close to the line that it's problematic for you to say to somebody, hey, follow me. Follow me. Right? Is it dangerous for them to follow you? See, because when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, it's not dangerous to follow him. And that's something that all of us Christians should be able to say. We, we um, talked about it as we close. This, this is the, uh, the analogy that we use for service. It's like we're mannequins, you know, dummies. Um, you know, the job of a dummy outside of a store, right? You put it in the window and the owner of the store dresses up the dummy in a way to be attractive, to get people to stop where they're going and to turn and go into the store and buy whatever it is that they're selling to follow that, whatever the fashion is, right? Well, Well, God wants to take us 
and he wants to dress us in the righteousness of Christ. And then he wants us to tell people to follow, like Paul's doing. Paul is dressed up in the righteousness of Christ, and he's saying to people, follow me. Follow me. I'm following Christ. I've got his righteousness. Follow me, and we'll be okay. We need to be able to do the same thing. That's my encouragement to you as we close this chunk of the letter is that you use your freedoms in such a way that you become somebody to follow towards Jesus. Do not use your freedoms in such a way that you become disqualified or that you become a stumbling block. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, you're good and gracious and kind and we love you. We thank you for your word with so much wisdom. We thank you for a full morning of worship as, we, as we've sung praises to you, as we've prayed for one another, as we've participated in the giving and offering of the church. Uh, God, we thank you that, that we have um, been able to see children being committed to you and their parents choose to dedicate them to the Lord. We thank you uh, to, for your word and the ability to open it up and to share from it. And God, ultimately, we thank you that we can do all of this because of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We thank you that you have loved us with such a faithful, passionate, grace-filled love. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for the cross. God, we ask you to lead us from this place in our Christian freedom and in wisdom so that we can walk in our freedom well enough that we can encourage people to be imitators of us as we are imitators of Christ. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.